The easiest way to secure and accelerate your website is with Encapsula, protecting over 4 million sites from individual bloggers to the Fortune 50. Visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. Before we start the show, one thing you should know is that we talk about resizing online elastic block store volumes in this episode, making the point that you couldn't actually do it without unmounting the volume first. However, on February 13th, AWS announced that you can do that now. We wanted to give you a heads up on that since that's a change that happened since we recorded this show. For those of us used to building complex, resilient data infrastructures based on physical platforms, Amazon Web Services is a bold new frontier because nothing's physical. I mean, at least as far as the consumer is concerned. AWS infrastructure, to us, is virtual. It lives in the cloud. But that doesn't mean practical design considerations go away. On today's Datanauts podcast, we explore AWS from a warts and all viewpoint. How to get the best design for the least money within the limited capabilities that Amazon gives us, which isn't to say they're limited. There's a lot of power there. But how do you get the best for the least? At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who believes that a cigar a day keeps the doctor away. Joining us to talk about AWS, Amazon Web Services, Alex Galbraith. Alex, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, man? Hey, Alex Galbraith. I work as a solutions architect for a global service provider. I've been uh, kind of starting my AWS journey about 12 months ago, having been in the industry for probably, I don't know, more years than I'd want to count now, maybe 13, 14 years now. I started sharing things which kind of surprised or interested me coming from the traditional enterprise data center and moving into the cloud world. Other than that, I'm about six foot seven. So I know people at gigs, but on the plus side, you (laughs) you can generally pick me out in the crowd at a tech event. Yeah, that is. Um, also, finally, you can catch me on the Twitters at Alex Galbraith. And Alex, your blog is really the root of this show because you did a series about AWS tips and gotchas, and there was nine or ten or maybe more parts where you, in your Amazon Web Services journey, wrote up all of these little things that got you, these very practical concerns about AWS that you ran into as you were building out infrastructure, studying for certifications. And so on. And so those of you listening, if you search on Alex's blog, you can find really everything that we're going to talk about here is covered to uh, some degree or another. And I just picked out some highlights from that series that I thought were interesting and worth talking about. And here we are, Alex. I wanted to start off with AWS storage warts. So we're talking about warts and all. So let's talk about some of the storage warts, the things that are maybe gotchas or limitations that we would need to be aware of. And one of the things that you ran into now, quoting from your blog here, a storage for any single instance may not exceed 20,000 IOPS and 320 megabytes per second per EBS, Elastic Block Store, volume, which when you look at big storage rates, it doesn't sound like a whole lot of throughput. So, you know, in what sense is that a limitation, do you think? I guess it depends on where you're coming from. I suppose my, my background, I came from environments where I, I would be working in the enterprise with, say, 50 terabyte databases doing six gig a second of throughput and as i moved into the architecture space i then moved into the mid-market and i was working with a number of different organizations who did things like marketing analytics and they could be pushing like 300 400 megabytes a second for each of their customer environments so 
depending on the architecture of the actual application, I can quite easily see customers pushing that kind of level of throughput on existing applications. One of the key things that we look at, though, is as we move into the cloud is looking to refactor those applications. So although it sounds like it is a lot of throughput, actually, if you can start to re-architect those applications to spread that throughput out, perhaps you could start to reduce those numbers that are pushing against individual volumes, for example. So really, the whole idea of moving to cloud is you want to distribute as much as possible. Well, just to clarify here, I mean, storage for any single instance is the key here, I think, that you were drilling in on. So if I spread my app across a bunch of instances, all of a sudden, I'm much less likely to run into an IOPS bottleneck. Absolutely. And what you typically find is these significant IO utilization applications, it's usually around the data storage element of it. It's not the front end applications where you start to see this. Although, obviously, when you start to move into kind of centralizing your storage, you tend to find that's a little bit less flexible as maybe, say, front-end application servers. At that point, you probably want to start thinking about, well, you know, if I can't necessarily scale that out, how do I perhaps reduce the utilization against that as well? So examples of things that you can do to increase that scalability would be things like caching. So either delivering content from an edge location using something like a CDN, um, or what I see very often is delivering content or delivering data from RAM. So caching it using something like Redis or Memcache. AWS have got their own versions of those called Elasticache, and you can basically buy Redis as a service or Memcache as a service. And the more that you can start to deliver from memory, the less that you actually hit on that back-end storage. Yeah, gotcha. Doesn't that sound kind of old school, though? Like, let's build out a bunch of volumes and spread our instances across it. Like, kind of reminds me of the old school architecture we did on-prem that we're now having to port into the cloud. I, I guess the difference being a distributed application is the difference there. I don't know. That just sounds kind of old school to me. It sounds very siloed to be bottlenecked at, at such a critical level, you know, and have no abstraction layer above the volume or something to kind of handle that. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's where depends on who you're talking to. I talk to a lot of customers who are looking to take <laughs> their existing applications and they want to move them to the cloud. And sometimes they have the control over refactoring those applications and sometimes not. Right. If you're building it from the ground up, let's say you're the guy who, you know, who wrote Flappy Bird, for example, I would imagine he's probably built it distributed from day one, in which case, hopefully that problem doesn't actually arise. And what about changing the size of the volume? Uh, I see a tidbit here. You can't increase the size without unmounting the volume or in some cases stopping the instance, which that would not hold any kind of weight in the enterprise on-prem. They'd be like, are you kidding me? I don't want this ever. But this yeah. is apparently just the norm. I mean, why can't you resize it dynamically? And, and how does this play in the AWS world? Yeah, so um, when I came from the enterprise and started doing this cloud stuff about 12 months ago, that was probably one of the things that jumped out at me most. In fact, I think I may have even created a meme about it because I was so blown away about it. I was, you know, as a traditional VMware administrator, you're used to just increasing the size on demand for your applications as they grow. Um, and it's really, really simple. You know, you've got thin provisioning on the back end for your storage, and then you just allocate it as you need it to your application servers. Moving into the cloud again, I, I guess it comes down to that whole piece about what is a kind of cloud native architecture, even though I absolutely hate the term. With a cloud native architecture, you'd probably be looking to make your instances as ephemeral as possible. So in other words, the actual instances themselves, you don't care about blowing them away and replacing them. So if you need to be able to increase the size of them, well, you just delete it and replace it with another one that's identical, just with a bigger volume on it. So that's that's one way around it. Alternatively, 
you'd ideally have multiple load balanced instances. So, for example, you could take instances out the farm. If you really weren't able to make your instances ephemeral, you would load balance across multiple, take them out one at a time, and you know increase the volumes as you as you need to. I guess it all depends on the way that you've uh, designed your application in the first place. What about pricing? Could you just make a gigantic volume, and since you're not actually writing to it, you know, it's not a worry. Or are you paying for the entire size of the volume capacity, not necessarily what you've written? Now that's a that's a really interesting question because it actually depends on which cloud vendor that you're talking about. So we're talking about AWS today, and absolutely, whatever you've allocated as your volume size, you're paying for. Um, oh, wow. There are other cloud vendors who actually effectively charge you for thin provisioning. So you could over allocate the size of your volumes, and you don't have to necessarily pay for anything you're not using. So. The key thing here, though, is whichever way you're going, you're still going to ultimately end up in some form of a utility bill, but it just depends on how harsh that particular cloud provider is as to how much they'll charge you. Certainly with AWS, you get charged for everything that's allocated. Alex, here's another question based on your blog. You said individual S3 buckets are limited to 100 current write transactions per second and 300 reads. So, okay, there's a couple of things here. First, we've been talking about elastic block storage, a particular kind of storage that you can take advantage of in AWS. Now we're talking about S3, which is a different style of storage. So could you explain the difference between elastic block store and then S3 and then explain this S3 limitation of 100 concurrent writes and 300 reads per second? Yeah, absolutely. So EBS or elastic block storage, that's that's traditional block storage. That's, you know, if you're a VMware guy, that's the equivalent of your data store, say, running with a, an iSCSI backend. You read and write blocks of data to that data store, and that could be like a whole file or even part of a file. So, you know, for example, if you have like a really large Word document that you're working on and you save changes to it, it's only going to save the updated blocks onto that backend block storage. So you move into the object storage world, and what you find is that you're not actually manipulating these blocks or these parts of files. Um, what you're actually doing is you're manipulating the entire object. So that could be a file or a, an image or whatever your objects happen to be. So instead of doing that through, say, a traditional operating system where you have to mount that block storage and then interact with it with your application, object storage, you actually access it via an API or even a simple HTTP requests. That makes it really, really simple from a developer perspective to be able to develop applications against it, to scale it as well. Because when you have an object, it's very, very easy to either replicate that object, so multiple copies of it in the back end, across, say, for example, multiple regions or multiple areas of the country, wherever you have the availability of the underlying infrastructure. In the case of AWS, you can actually even build in through S3 automatic replication to other parts of the world, which is really, really useful in terms of both availability and also being able to get files local to your users. On top of that, the fact that it's uh, object storage makes it highly durable. So I think AWS, they give you something like 11 nines of durability in terms of uh, what their expectation is on that back All the nines. Yeah, that's All like the, the nine. Okay, I guess not 10, but 11. Uh, okay, well, uh, if it was only 10, I don't know. Well, but anything worth doing needs to go to 11. That's we right. all know this. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So in terms of that 300 per second, so the way it works with S3 is you have what they call a bucket. Now, a bucket is effectively a collection of your objects, which are kind of logically put into one container, if you'd look at it that way. Not to be confused with, you know, Docker containers or any other thing. And the key thing about that is if you're only able to, say, read 300 objects in a second, that sounds like quite a lot. But if you think about, say, a typical web page, a typical web page will have something like 50 to 100 objects in it. So actually, if you start thinking about even just a small number of users, you could potentially overrun that maximum limitation, even with a relatively low utilization website. 
the way to actually avoid that would be, again, it goes back to things that we were talking about earlier on around caching. And this is kind of a theme that comes up again and again when you're looking at cloud native applications. You want to cache as much of your content away from those primary stores as possible, which then takes that away in terms of the, the utilization on the back end. The last part as well, I would say, is if your application is not capable of caching, so an example might be we talked about Flappy Bird earlier on. Let's say you were able to screenshot your Flappy Bird score and upload it into S3 as part of your application. You would uh, potentially, let's say you've got 100 users or more at a time that are trying to do that. You could suddenly, again, you could swamp that backend S3 bucket. The way that you can actually get around that limitation is just simply to use more buckets. And the crazy thing is there is no limitation on the number of buckets that you can use within S3. They used to limit it, but they've taken that away now. So as long as you can then track where you've put those objects into which buckets, which again requires you to probably buy more AWS services, things like DynamoDB, which is a key value store, then you can pretty much go infinite at that point in terms of the amount of storage you can consume. There's EBS, there's S3, there's other kinds of Amazon storage as well, if I remember right. Did they give you a recommendation, like you should choose this kind of storage for this sort of scenario? That really comes down to your applications themselves. So that's one thing that I'm I'm finding people a lot more moving towards utilizing S3 and object storage for their applications just purely because it makes it that much simpler for developers to work on. Also, because S3 is now becoming a bit of a de facto standard across the industry for other storage. So other storage vendors are going out there and creating arrays which are S3 compatible. So you can, for example, go to a backup vendor and that backup vendor could write to S3 and that could be Amazon's S3 or it could be anybody else's. So there's certainly a lot of popularity there, but it's very much going to vary via your application. For example, you wouldn't want to take a MySQL database and stick it in an S3 bucket. Because every time you did an update to your database, you'd have to rewrite the entire database as an object. Because it's a gigantic object. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, what about this quote? There is no native encryption of EFS data yet. And I'm thinking, all right, we got EBS and S3 on AWS and EF. Is this thing not acronym soup or what? So (laughs) first off, what is EFS and why is there no encryption? Why does that matter? And what's the solution? Chris, I think you're going to like this bit because EFS is probably your favorite thing in the world, as I understand it. Underlying EFS is actually NFS, and it's Amazon. Why don't they just call it NFS? <laughs> it is <laughs> a great you've got protocol. Because add elastic to everything when it comes to Amazon services. True, true. <laughs> EFS is basically a shared NFS data store that you can effectively take slices of rather than having to, say, run up EC2 instances, which are Amazon's virtual machines and then mounting NFS from there, which could potentially put you at risk, or you'd have to have some way of replicating between those instances to give you high availability. EFS is basically just straightforward NFS as a service. So you have NFS data stores, which I think are NFS 4.1, if I remember rightly, off the top of my head. The thing about this service, though, is firstly, it's only available in four regions at the moment. It's fairly early availability just now. And because of that, I think they're definitely still working away in the background, developing it like crazy, because there's a number of features were not quite available just yet. One of the key ones there is encryption for data at rest. I guess if you ask any CIO or CTO, what are their top three concerns, you can pretty much guarantee one of them is going to be security. I think people putting their trust in the public cloud is, is a lot easier if they know that their data is encrypted and you can't just walk out of the data center with a hard drive and all of that data on it. So I guess the fact that EFS doesn't have it yet, although Amazon have said on their FAQs that it's definitely coming, just means it's not quite ready for the prime time yet. I suspect, you know, give it another six months at the rate that Amazon are releasing features and they're going to actually be available then. 
So at this point, you need to encrypt the data before you let it land in EFS yourself and hold those keys somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, that's an interesting point as well, because Amazon have got a whole range of different ways that you can potentially look to encrypt your data. Usually it comes down to what is the administrator trying to achieve in the first place. For example, if you're just looking for a a checkbox type feature so that you can make sure that you've met your compliance requirements and you just need simple data at rest, many of the Amazon services will actually take care of that on your behalf. It literally is a checkbox encrypt my data at rest. If you're a little bit more paranoid and you have, you know, for example, a, a chief information security officer in your company, almost definitely you're going you're gonna to need something a little, bit, a little bit more secure. So at that point, Amazon let you even do things like bring in an HSM, so a, a hardware security device, which will actually manage all of your keys for you without them actually being within the Amazon environment. You know, my main takeaway is that just like any architectural set of rules, it's about understanding the constraints and requirements and whatnot. And in this case, it's the constraints, right? As it stands with any architecture, the constraints are building a scenario that follow a different set of rules in AWS than on-prem enterprise. But the aim is still to understand how the functional design is going to pan out. So it's really just a matter of uh, making sure you understand where your constraints are and working within them. It was nice to hear that that hasn't really deviated in the AWS world. What about you, Ethan? What I noticed here is that AWS seems to be assuming a certain kind of application architecture, which really goes right back to the constraints that you were just talking about, Chris. So you're given a certain kind of limitations, and if your application is architected in a way that you can scale out, uh, or maybe microservices, a word we didn't talk about in this show, but would map to this model well, then all of a sudden the constraints kind of make sense. But if you're coming from an enterprise with a certain expectation for the way you would set things up, and maybe you're thinking about things more from a virtualization perspective, AWS might be a little different for you. So moving to cloud all of a sudden is not as simple as just, I'm going to pick up the stuff I have and I'm going to move it to AWS. Actually, you might have to re-architect your application to make it work well. DDoS listeners, Ethan here. I'm sure you're aware that DDoS attacks are normal part of life. You've probably been hit by one or you're going to be at some point in the future. And our sponsor, Encapsula, can protect you from those DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, while also offering bot protection, website security, load balancing, a content distribution network, and it is all one easy-to-use service. And, and if you're missing what the point of this is, the big idea is to put Encapsula in front of your website so that your website is protected. Uh, your website will continue to deliver content even when bad things are happening. The thing here is that Encapsula is seeing all of your traffic anyway, so they're going to block that bad stuff, which is maybe the most important thing. But since they're seeing it all, they're going to accelerate that good stuff too. The bad stuff goes away. The good stuff gets even better. And if you think DDoS protection is no big deal, I personally think it's a really big deal. It's not hard these days for someone to build or even rent someone's command and control network and then unleash terror on your website, keeping your web down, offline. Encapture protects you from this sort of an attack because they have their own massive network, three terabit per second network with 30 data centers housing their packet scrubbers. And I love this little detail. They codename their packet scrubbers BMOF. Behemoth scrubbers can handle 500 million packets per second, and all of that put together means that putting Encapsula in front of your website means that you can withstand a DDoS attack. So to add Encapsula's capabilities to your website, visit Encapsula.com slash packet pushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. One more time, that's Encapsula.com slash packet pushers 
and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. Let's stop picking on storage because we all know that uh, it's the most lovely part of the data center. Let's pick on something that deserves our ire, and that is networking and all of its warts. So, <sighs> Alex, you have a quote on here. If you've gone out and bought a shiny new Direct Connect to your AWS platform, you might reasonably assume that all the users and apps on your MPLS will automatically start using this for accessing S3 content and AWS endpoints. In my mind, there's this buzzer going, eh, not so simple. So <laughs> let's kind of deconstruct that sentence there. First off, what is AWS Direct Connect? Well, if you're working in a, a typical kind of enterprise where you're having a private WAN, so an MPLS, you might want to look at extending out into AWS to make AWS effectively another tail on your MPLS, you know, just like any other site or any other data center that you might hook in. What Direct Connect allows you to do is basically take a one gig or a 10 gig connection straight into AWS. It's usually terminated in Equinix data centers. And from there, you effectively have access directly into your AWS environments or into the public. Yeah, this this reminds me of a, of a show we did early, Chris, the Cloud Exchange show. Ah, uh, correct, yeah. We talked with, was it the Internet guys? I forget. But but yeah, they talked about this exact kind of a service. Okay, sorry, Alex. All right, so it's kind of like a crossover cable that gets dropped into your environment, gives you direct plumbing into the AWS environment. So are you buying it from the cross-connect vendor, like from the Colo? Are you buying from AWS? Is this global? Like, how does this get sliced and diced? And why am I not just able to plug right into the environment by connecting this cable? Right. So a couple of things there. First of all, if you knew where the AWS data centers were, then maybe you would have a good chance of going and grabbing a cable and plugging it in. So that's the first thing. <laughs> yeah. If, if you do some searches on Google and do searches for a few news stories and bits and pieces, you can probably guess where some of the AWS data centers oh, it's easy. are. You but... get, the, get the power bill from the, the power. It's like, oh, you're doing great compared to your neighbor who's taking up 50 million times more power than you are. Like, <laughs> I think that's a data center. <laughs> Anyways, please continue. That's the first part of it, is that AWS won't let you directly go straight to their data centers and hook in with your chosen provider. So the second part is, though, that most ISPs now are actually offering AWS services straight out to their customers. So you probably already have an MPLS provider, and actually it's usually the simplest thing is just to go and approach them. Now, they can either offer you, as I said earlier on, the 1 gig or the 10 gig links, or actually what they're often doing now is they will go out and they'll buy, say, a gig or a 10 gig link, and then they'll subdivide it for their customers. So you don't have to jump straight in there at, you know, kind of gig link speeds, which could be pretty expensive. You're saying I can go to my AT&T or Verizon business or Vodafone, whoever my carrier is, and say, you guys, I'm assuming, have a connection to Amazon, right? Yeah, I want a piece of that. And they'll, they'll pump it into the private cloud they've already built for you. Exactly. And at that point, you usually end up buying it in quantities of, you know, like 50, 100 meg, 200 meg, that kind of thing, which is much better for small, medium-sized businesses who aren't going to be pushing those kind of bandwidth volumes. So when I've plugged that in, to me, with a networking background, I would say this is a routing problem. Now I would announce my Amazon IP blocks into my network and I would start using that link. Is that not the case? It works exactly the same effectively if you're talking about, say, your virtual machines, your EC2 instances. That is how it works. So you can choose the specific subnets that you want to have or the side ranges that you want to have in your Amazon environment. And then you can announce those back to your private environment. The problem comes when you want to then start mixing and matching that with Amazon's public-facing services. So, for example, S3 that we mentioned earlier on, that's actually a public-facing service that sits in publicly routable address space. To be able to achieve that, what you actually need to do, well, you can use a private one-gig link, and then you can subdivide that into public and private 
connections. But if you're a small or medium-sized business, like we were mentioning earlier on, what you're probably going to actually have to do is you're going to have to buy multiple links. So you're going to have to buy a link for public and a separate link for private connectivity. And what they terminate on is something that they call a VIF or a virtual interface at the AWS end. And those are either defined, as I say, as private or public. Jeez. Okay. So it sounds like the conflict is coming in here where I've got public IP address space that I would normally access via the public internet that might also be being used on my private direct connect side. And so therefore I can get into some routing confusion. Yeah. And also if you, if you want to get really nasty, I have seen some solutions where people are having to do natting and all sorts of other horrible things to actually get to access the public space properly as well. (laughs) Wait, wait, (laughs) Ethan, didn't you always say that nat is like what makes the internet cry? (laughs) It, It is what makes the internet cry. I was just on a podcast yesterday and people were I was talking about IPv6 and they're like, but I get to keep my NAT, right? Like, oh, stop. You don't want to keep your NAT. Anyway, yeah, that's a thing. Ugh. I was just waiting for you to uh, to cue the, the joke about NAT for security, no? Oh, security by obscurity. Well, I mean, you can't argue <laughs> it doesn't add something, but it doesn't add much. Anyway. <laughs> that's why you do double NAT. That's extra secure. <laughs> VPCs and accounts, Alex, this is another issue you identified here where if you've got a bunch of different, I don't know if it's workloads or what the best way to put it, basically different accounts within the Amazon system, but you're trying to maybe different business units created them, but then they need to talk to each other, it can kind of get ugly. Yeah. So I think probably to explain this, it makes sense if I kind of go back to some of the basics. Within an AWS environment, first of all, you have accounts. And an account is what you obviously sign up to and you have a root account user for and that's what you actually build at that level of the account. Within an account, you then have this logical concept of a VPC or a virtual private cloud. Now, I guess the closest thing if you're a VMware administrator would be like a virtual data center in VMware. Now, in that VPC, each of these VPCs is entirely independent in terms of their address space independent in terms of their infrastructure. So you run an EC2 instance, for example, a virtual machine. It can't run in multiple VPCs. It's always staying within a single VPC. And then broken down within that VPC, you can even have both multiple subnets, but you can also have multiple things called availability zones. Now, this is where it's quite cool because an availability zone in traditional thought, and Amazon will tell, like, basically stab me in the eyes for saying this, but in logical speak is basically a data center. So you can have multiple availability zones within a single VPC and a single VPC spanning within a single region. It's kind of like different levels of complexity within there. But the key thing is that um, what I typically find with uh, people that I work with, customers I work with, is they want to generally dedicate a VPC for either each application or perhaps they split down their VPC saying, right, okay, I've got a production VPC and then I'll have a staging VPC and a dev tests VPC. And then that way you have kind of like a logical boundary within which you can secure the infrastructure and perhaps even set RBAC permissions based on that. So, you know, my developers, I wouldn't want them to touch production, for example. I mean, it's multi-tenancy. That's how that reads to me. You've, you've got a common uh, infrastructure you're using, but you've separated them off one from another, except in this case, instead of it being in your own data center, it's in Amazon's. Exactly. So in Amazon, then, obviously, compared to my data center, if I needed to be able to get point A to talk to point B, then obviously I would just make sure that the appropriate routes were in place and that my firewall rules were in place and those kind of things. With VPCs, you can do the same thing. So in theory, you could use effectively internet routing from one VPC to another, or you can establish something called a VPC peer. VPC peer is literally like a, you know, like a private link between these two 
logical constructs. And that's great. But the problem comes when what happens if I'm a, and I, and I have actually seen this where a customer might have, for example, in excess of a hundred VPCs spread across multiple accounts <laughs> and that they, they need. That's not a problem. That's called a billing opportunity. That's, <laughs> AWS is like, yeah, playing a riff anyways. Only if there's more than like one instance in each one, obviously. True. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the problem then becomes, first of all, how the do you manage that? Because each of these peers, you have to set them up independently. And then the second thing that's really, really critical when you start looking at VPC peering is it's not transitive. So say I've got VPC A, B, and C, and A can talk to B, and B can talk to C. I cannot use B as a, as a link between A and C. I have to have a separate peer again from A to C. So things start getting really messy really quickly. I think I'm starting to see the challenge here because you, you maybe you'd intuitively think, okay, I have all these VPCs under the same account, so therefore they should be able to talk to each other. But in fact, the construct is these are individual clouds as if you had individual separate tenants. And so you are going to have to do special plumbing to get the VPCs to talk to each other, even if you're the one paying the bill for all of them. And then, right, as you say, the more VPCs you've got that may need to chat, then the more complex your different configurations could get. And I think the transitive one is interesting as well, right? A to B and B to C doesn't mean A can talk to C, which is the way you would want it to be with security and separation as your emphasis. But it gets complicated now when you're trying to stitch these different environments together on the occasions that you need to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the common use cases that you would actually have is you might want, for example, a management VPC or a, you know, your security guy says, right, well, I want a VPC or a separate account all to myself where I can have everything logged to that one location, that's actually quite easy, relatively speaking, because at that point, you're kind of looking at almost like a hub-and-spoke kind of method. It's really not, not overly complicated. But if you start to get to the point where you have applications in each VPC, and then those applications need to talk to each other kind of east-west from a logical perspective, then things start to get quite messy. There are a number of different variations that they talk about you know like you can randomly put vpc appearing in between different ones the hub and spoke one that we've already talked about full mesh so full mesh if you literally want to set up a vpc peer between every single one of them you can go ahead and do that but good luck making sure that you know you haven't missed any anywhere etc and then the last one which is is actually currently the amazon recommended method and i kind of understand why they've done it because it becomes not their problem anymore is lollipop routing. So in other words, you take the Amazon Direct Connect that we talked about earlier on, and you actually just do all of your routing via your Direct Connect. So your routing goes back out the Direct Connect, hits a router at the other end of that line, and then comes back in. At that point, at least you can scale it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's router on a stick, basically. Yeah. Exactly. That Which is, blah, that's ugly <laughs> if, you, if you do that. What a waste of pipe. But um, But yeah, I can see how that would get around the issue from a certain point of view. Yeah, it's not pretty. I think the key thing there is, depending on who you're working with to actually be able to set all this stuff up, you're probably best to take advice from somebody who's done it before. <laughs> yeah, and I, my acronym dictionary keeps going to VPC peering on a, on a Nexus to form a virtual port channel peer. So <laughs> I mean, every time you say VPC peering, I'm like, no, no, the other one. So, yeah. And we're even like talking networking too. To so, yeah. <laughs> crazy. Well, what about this last one that we pulled as a quote, that the placement groups were designed specifically for high bandwidth applications, which require low latency, 10 gigabits connectivity between instances. Okay, there's a lot there. What, what is a placement group? Why do they need all this stuff? And what's, what's the solution all about? 
So placement groups are really, really useful, but they're quite specific as to the use case. They tend to get used mostly for things like high-performance computing, you know, genomics, these kind of things. And what it is is when you need very, very high bandwidth, very low latency between your application servers. And at that point, what you can do is as you spin up your instances and you say, I want these all to exist within a placement group, they literally will be sitting together within, in the data center as close as AWS are able to do that. One of the tricky parts of that is if you then come along later on and go, right, okay, I need to add another like 10 servers into that placement group. Unfortunately, Amazon don't then say to you, well, we can't really guarantee that they're going to be sitting locally to each other because by that point, you know, another 100 machines might have been spun up in that same physical location. So the best thing with placement groups is generally speaking to try and spin up your entire environment in one go if you really need that low latency piece. However, if it's more of a case of you can, for example, pod out your application, then perhaps think about spinning up these in groups of servers as you grow your environment. Alex was talking about the AWS Direct Connect feature, and you'd think, oh, I plug in a line, and all of a sudden I have lower latency and dedicated bandwidth to AWS, and that'll be awesome. And then he starts talking about the routing challenges. So, I mean, optimizing routing gets funky when address space is reachable via more than one link, which happens with certain of the AWS services. There's a public IP address scheme there that they've assigned, and so you could get to it via public internet. Or if you put the routing in place via this private line, but you end up with this bi-directional routing problem. You've got to route the correct way to get to the AWS service across that private link, and then they need to route back correctly to you uh, as you expected, which, you know, I've done this kind of work before. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's a real pain in the butt. Chris, what did you pick up in this section? I was thinking that one nice advantage of having multiple VPCs is that as you build up various environmental tiers, assuming that's just part of your architecture, is that you can make them look and actually be similar. Because typically when you have dev and test and QA and stage and prod, each one is using a waterfall of different hardware and versions and whatnot. And since you can really abstract away all the hardware and components like at a kind of homogenous abstracted layer, everything can be pretty much identical, especially if you're using a config or, or something like Terraform to say, this is my environment and just change the prefix or the network subnets and things like that. So anyways, I thought VPCs were a great way to make realistically sliced up environments that look and feel the same across the tiers. All right, Alex, we talked about storage, we've talked about networking. Now let's talk about not a specific technology as such, but scaling. Scaling being one of those big things you're supposed to get with an application architecture that supports it. And everybody talks about scaling and being able to automatically scale up your apps. So you explore this in AWS. And just to uh, one more time, let's quote your blog. When configuring your auto-scaling group, make sure the grace period is set sufficiently long to ensure your instances have had time to start a complete all of their bootstrap scripts. So what are we getting into here? I think I, I think I get the gist of it, but talk us through it. Okay, so kind of, again, going back to the basics of it, before we go into auto-scaling, I'd probably explain about elastic load balancing because they're extremely tightly coupled. So elastic load balancing is basically AWS's cloud-based load balancer. Now, the key thing I've found with the ELBs or ALBs, application load balancers, is the, is the newer, slightly funkier version. But they're not as flexible as, say, you know, like an F5 or a Netscaler. But equally, you're not paying F5 or Netscaler kind of uh, budgets to be able to get that kind of utilization in your platform. I find generally, and I think this follows across a lot of the AWS services, certainly the ones that I've looked at in depth anyway, 
AWS seem to follow like the 80-20 rule. So they will aim to get 80% of the functionality that most people use or that 80% of the people use most of the time into their main features and functions. And then the last 20%, if you really, really need some really specific feature or your application just won't work, then you can always go to the AWS marketplace and you can download a load balancer or whatever it is that you need for your application. And I think that kind of follows across the rest of the AWS services as well. So with Elastic Load Balancer, you know, this is this is a load balancer. So it's there for, you know, your resilience, your high availability of your applications, and to obviously give you optimum performance so you can scale up your environment and you can add additional instances into the load balancer as you need. Now, you can do all of that manually if you want. And doing that manually is pretty much the way that we've been doing it for the last 20 odd years in the enterprise. But that sounds horrible. Like, why why would you want? It's like you could continue to hammer nails into your toes. Exactly. Because we have been. (laughs) (laughs) The key thing here, though, is we want to get to the the unicorns and the bacon, you know, this lovely cloud stuff. And so what we really want is the cloud to take care of that for us. So an auto-scaling group is, is really that kind of unicorn and bacon amazing thing. What it does is you set a configuration. You say, oh, I want each of my instances to be spun up using this specific configuration. You can set it to even run a bootstrap script when it comes up so that it could, for example, go and download your application code or to you know, register itself on some other element of your application. And then what it does is the auto-scaling group will automatically add any additional instances into the Elastic Load Balancer for you. So all of those things that you might have tried to, for example, script in a VMware environment and had some horrific times with PowerShell and stuff, you can just get away from doing all of that and the auto-scaling group does it for you. So immediately that suddenly enables all these lovely, and I'll use the, another word that I absolutely hate, with paradigms. So one of these, uh, these new paradigms... with took a um, <laughs> <laughs> In terms of you know, elastically scaling your applications during peak periods, you know, be it Black Friday or even just Saturday night whenever your site is busy, and then scaling it back down when it's no longer needed. And the auto-scaling group is the thing that provides you with all that magic. So Alex, you talk about the creation of VPCs, and you mentioned that there's an option in there to create it as, quote, default or dedicated. I don't really know what those are. I'm going to guess dedicated is amazing and default is crap because no one ever wants the defaults. (laughs) But you say further, if you select dedicated, then every EC2 instances from there on will be created on dedicated hardware by default pun intended, I suppose, uh, within that VPC. So, okay, I, I give up. What, what is the difference between dedicated and default? And why wouldn't I just use dedicated? Don't I want it to run on, you know, specific hardware and be amazing? How big is your wallet, I think, is the answer to that question. <laughs> I have all the monies. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've pretty much nailed it there, Ethan. So, you know, you want to move into this lovely cloud world. You really want to be hitting that multi-tenant tin as much as possible. In terms of the ability to get the economies of scale, that's where Amazon is actually doing all of this. So, you know, 99.9% of the servers that Amazon is probably running is probably running within a shared multi-tenant environment. And that's what default actually means. So when you create a VPC, it will automatically spin that up in a multi-tenant environment unless you specifically tell it that you want an an individual instance Uh to run on dedicated tin. For example, maybe you want to use a specific application that requires core-based licensing on a physical host, that kind of thing. So in that instance, you say, right, this definitely has to stay on a dedicated instance that only runs for me. Another example might be, I know if you're certain application vendors perhaps require that you have support from them, otherwise they don't allow you to run it in a multi-tenant cloud infrastructure. But if you're using a dedicated instance on a dedicated piece of tin, then effectively they allow you to count it as if it's on-premises, in which case 
you want to check the dedicated button. But I would say the dedicated button is like a go faster button for your bill. So definitely the want turbo to be button. careful about you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, a go faster it's a, Really, it should be, do you want shared or dedicated? Like default sounds like a crappy option name. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it, it does sound like it should be the default because it seems like a weird idea to like, I'm going to go to the cloud and I want my own server. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they were. I think they were just targeting. Like, I'm an I'm an old school Windows administrator, and I just used to hit next, 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 default done. So maybe they were just targeting people like me. Fair enough. I mean, I, I wouldn't know. I'd be like, uh, yes. <laughs> All right, Alex. Some more terminology and fundamentals here. You identified this issue that spot instances and sticky sessions do not play well together. If you use spot instances as a method for providing cheap burst resources. Make sure your application is not dependent on sticky sessions. Well, I think I know what a sticky session is. That's where when a transaction has happened, you've got to keep going back to that same server, wherever that transaction was uh, was originally established, or else the session will fail because you don't have session mirroring in this application. You've got to stick. You've got to keep going to the same place over and over again. So is that – do I have the right idea? Is that still true in AWS? And, and uh, if so, then, uh, then what's a spot instance? Yes, that's absolutely true. So you can choose within your load balancing configuration if you want to use sticky sessions. I mean, I personally think sticky sessions are something I I wish developers would just kill with fire because they hamper your ability to have that scalable infrastructure and it be much more flexible and quick to react to to failure. Yeah, statefulness sucks. If you can work around it, statefulness sucks. (laughs) I mean, the key thing there is if you can move that state to somewhere else. So mentioned things like Memcache and Redis earlier on. That's a really common model. So you pull that session state out and you store that in a separate environment. At that point, then you can effectively just round robin and any of your underlying application servers can take any individual inbound connection. The key difference here, uh, or the key thing that we want to cover here around spot instances though, spot instances are actually a really cool feature of AWS. If you think of a spot instance as basically like kind of like a marketplace or a, or a stock market for unused compute. So rather than AWS saying, well, you know, you guys haven't bought all of our EC2 instances, so, you know, you can you can go and take a long, long jump. Um, we're not going to give you them on the cheap. They actually say, right, well, you guys can bid, and whoever whoever's willing to pay a bit of money to be able to utilize those EC2 instances that aren't in use, then we'll let you use them. However, the proviso is we can pull that out from under you with as little as two minutes of notice. So you get a little something called metadata, which you have access to. You have to poll it, though. It's not proactively pushing that information to you. The metadata will track whether or not your instance is about to go down. And when AWS is going to pull your instance from under you, they will actually update that metadata and say, right, okay, your instance is going to disappear in two minutes. Just to pause you for just a second. So this spawn instance is accessible to me for pennies on the dollar, essentially, for as long as Amazon can't sell it to someone else for you know, full rate. And as soon as they can get good money for it, rather than the pennies you were spending just because it was excess capacity that uh, that they couldn't otherwise sell, they'll take it away from you. But but again, with a two-minute warning. Exactly. And in fact, the whole idea of spot instances has actually become really, really popular with certain industries where what they want is lots and lots of really cheap compute. But they don't necessarily need that to exist for a particular long time, or they can actually move it. As long as their data can move, they can actually move that compute to other parts of the world later. So, for example, I mentioned genomics very briefly earlier on. There are things like pharmaceutical and genomics companies who are doing processing and they're following the sun 
And whenever it's a really quiet time in a particular region, they're buying up really, really cheap compute using spot instances. And I've heard of numbers as much as kind of 90% of savings by utilizing spot instances and following the sun. So it, there's oh, yeah. a lot of money to be saved there potentially. If your world exists in two minute increments, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I could see other use like Bitcoin mining or anything that's just really take this stuff, compute it, and then send me back an answer. And you're not necessarily generating a ton of data. There seems like a lot of value in that. I didn't yeah, even know about that. That's pretty cool. So what it'll, what it'll do as well is if AWS terminate the instance for you rather than you terminating it, they won't charge you for the last subset of an hour. So even if you've used, say, 58 minutes in an hour, if they terminate that instance before the hour is up, you don't get charged for it. If you terminate it, you do get charged for it. So what you want to do in the event that you get this, this notification saying, right, okay, you're, this instance is going to go down in the next two minutes, what you want to do is you want to be monitoring for that using, say, a script inside the operating system. Then you gracefully stop processing data on that node, say, remove it from the load balancer using a command, an API command. And then at that point, let AWS terminate it for you, and you haven't paid for that last hour of, or what could be up to an hour. You know what that reminds of, me of? Remember when the, the cell phone minutes were really expensive, and at the 50-second mark, it would beep <laughs> to let you know, like, hey, you're about to hit a minute of usage, and you'd be like, okay, I got to go and hang up. It's just... Yep. See, what is old is new again, I tell you. Yep. <laughs> the big deal with the sticky sessions, Alex, is if Amazon terminates your spot instance and you have sessions that are supposedly persistent to that spot instance, you're screwed. You've abandoned – you're going to have to abandon those sessions and there's going to be a user impact. Exactly. And that's where you need to have that <clears throat> graceful process in place with your application to be able to, say, terminate that sticky session and get that user to reconnect to another node. Or even better, don't use sticky sessions at all. Hmm. Even better. Hmm. You hear us, devs? You you listening? We're talking to you from Data Knots here. Right, kind of coffin nail question here. You have part of your blog talking about if you need to just do a code release to an existing farm of servers running in an ASG and you aren't planning anything complex like a scheme update, you could just use a technique called scale up patching. So you, we got more verbiage to go through. What is this feature? It sounds interesting. And how does it work? Scale up patching. Yeah, so this was actually something I found out about at an AWS user group. I'd highly recommend as a great way, if you're starting in that AWS world, is go along, find your nearest user group, and just turn up and listen, because the amount of useful information you get from them is is really, really worth it. But anyway, the the speaker on this particular evening was talking about this method, and this was for a fairly sizable, it was a transport company in London, so they had fairly sizable environments, and quite a few of them. When you set up an autoscaling group, you set a configuration for the autoscaling group. So you can say, right, I know what my baseline workload is. I know to hit that, I need to always have at least, say, four servers on the go. So you set that minimum configuration on the autoscaling group. Now, when you want to then release a new version of your application, now let's assume in this case you're not doing something like a database schema update, which massively complicates things and most people try to avoid when they can. But when you're actually doing that kind of an upgrade, you could apply a new configuration to your autoscaling group. And rather than killing off all the servers initially and then spinning up new ones, what you do is you do it the other way around. So you say, right, I want my minimum configuration to be, say, eight servers. So at that point, it then spins up four more servers into your farm. They're automatically added into the load balancer and they're automatically using the latest version of your code. At that point, you then go back to the autoscaling group and you say, right, set it back to four servers again. And the way that Amazon works is they will always kill the oldest instances first, 
which means in that case, you then are left with four servers all running the latest version of your code. You've had no downtime whatsoever. You've been able to serve all those users during that period. And you've been able to do it in a very repeatable fashion. Because if you then suddenly find out that, oh God, I've introduced some really bad bit of code into my production application, you could then follow the exact same process to be able to go back to your original version. So you just update the autoscaling group again, double the size of it, half the size of it, job done. Not dissimilar from a rolling upgrade that you can do with Kubernetes. I've seen that that demoed before. It's kind of interesting. Similar, you, you stand up new instances on the new code, wait for new uh, connections to come in. Now you're running on the new code, and then you can shut down the old instances. Subtly different, but, but, a, but a very similar kind of a process. Scale up patching. I like it. Well, Alex, I think this brings us to the end of a really awesome recording here about Amazon Web Services, warts and all. Thank you for sharing all of your experiences. And there's so much more on Alex's blog, which is what, Alex? Where can people read your blog and how can they follow you? So you can find me at techhead.it. So it's T-E-K-H-E-A-D.it. And then you can find me on the Twitters at Alex Galbraith. And if you look at the show notes on packetpushers.net for this episode, we have uh, the links to Alex's blog along with several other links that we found in Amazon documentation about Elastic File Service and Elastic Block Storage, etc. And more. There's so much to find there. And that is going to be it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. I'm Ethan Banks. You can reach me at ECBanks on Twitter, my blog for engineers on product briefs, tech analysis, how-tos, etc. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can test the regional availability of Chris's blog at wallnetwork.com and follow him at Chris Wall on Twitter. Again, for all of our shows about infrastructure engineering and more in the world of IT, you can visit packetpushers.net. The data knots are there. We talk about things like uh, AWS, of course, and interesting vendor products, unikernels, containers, hybrid cloud, open source automation, and so very much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your compute be optimally utilized, and your cables be cleanly managed. I'm going to try to use lingo that I don't understand inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs>